0: and we're live hello and welcome to debut spotlight hello i'm rachel Barenbaum, author of a bend in the stars and the forthcoming atomic anna today my guest is jenna blum we are here to celebrate and hear all about her unbelievable debut memoir Woodrow on the Bench. You see the beautiful picture behind her? Here I've got another one. Yay. It was unbelievable. It is so good. It is about a dog, but it's really about so much more.
1: Jenna, thanks for joining me today. Can you tell me what is Woodrow on the Bench about? I'm so excited to be here with you, Rachel, after fangirling on Debut Spotlight since March 2020, you and your sparkle and your lipstick and all the things. So Woodrow on the Bench, which is so meta because I have like the book and I have a big poster poster. on an event on tour, is about my 14-year-old, Lab Woodrow, who was diagnosed with congestive heart failure and given only a few weeks to live. And he lasted seven more months. And I'm convinced that it's because every day and every night, I took him to the bench across from our downtown Boston apartment, and we sat there and sat there and sat there. And Woodrow held court because he was this very elegant old black lab who was called the George Clooney of dogs with an eye for the ladies. And he drew people to us, friends and neighbors and total strangers who formed a community around us and lofted us up and not only prolonged Woodrow's life, but taught me new lessons about how to live. I love that. So, you know, when I sit down and whenever I start
0: to read a memoir, I'm like, well, who is this lady? Right? Like, why do I want to be reading this in the first place? So, before we dig in, now that you know this book is about this amazing dog and this amazing woman, I'm going to read your bio and talk a little bit about you for a moment. So, we are here to celebrate The Mighty Blaze, which you co founded with Caroline Levitt. Thank you. Thank you. And Jenna Blum is the New York Times and number one internationally bestselling author of the novels Those Who Save Us. Chasers, and The Lost Family, and she's CEO of the literary social media marketing company, our very own A Mighty Blaze. She's based in Boston, where she's run fiction workshops for Grub Street writers for more than 20 years. But this is your first memoir. My first memoir. And I'm
1: so glad you said it that way. (laughs) I started doing this because Jane Roper, who is our zeitgeist on air host, and I have been talking for years about writing memoir and how we felt it was like a very Zsa Zsa Gabor thing to do to write about oneself. And I had never actually aspired to write a memoir. Mm -hmm. But when I saw Woodrow entering his final chapter, I thought maybe I can help other people who have Pets in that phase of life get through that phase and sort of hold their hands and pause. And also, I really wanted to tip my hat to this incredible community that grew up around us and provide this lightning rod for goodwill that all centered around this very old dog.
0: So um, on the face of it, on the surface, Woodrow on the Bench, right? Life lessons from a wise old dog. And I think a lot of people are picking it up and thinking, oh, this is going to be about a dog who's dying. And, you know, there are some sad parts, but this book is so much more than that. And that is not a reason, right? That is not, I for me, that was not the center of the book in so many ways. I was wondering if you could just talk about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um. So, and I'm seeing some friends from various places, including Sharon Carlson, pe- person who I just met in person in Minnesota, and then here she is again. So we have like super fans in the house. I'm so grateful. Where is mm-hmm. An- Where's Anissa Joy? Like, come on, Anissa, get with the program. Um. So, yeah, I'm hoping that Woodrow we'll on the bench strikes uplifting chords for people as well because. It is about a dog in his final days. It is about loss. It's about coping with grief. And I hope that if you're looking for an ugly cry to give you some good catharsis, which I personally feel like we all need after the last year and a half, like that's why I provide little tissue packs to readers with this book when I'm out on tour. But the fact is, too, that a lot of the book is really uplifting. It taught me, as I said, this time with Woodrow, a lot of lessons about how to live that I had not given myself permission to learn before, like how to ask for help. I don't know about you guys, but I am terrible at asking for help. I come from pioneer stock, like to admit that you need help is to admit a weakness. But Woodrow taught me otherwise. He taught me how to accept that help. He taught me how to be present because I stopped running around so much in my life and spent time with him on a park bench and just learned how to appreciate being in the moment. He taught me to let friends in in new ways. So people came and sat with me in my house while um he was in his dotage when I was afraid to leave him and he taught me how to let go and throughout the whole memoir um, when he was teaching me these lessons there are also really humorous moments as well because Woodrow's a dog and dogs are inherently funny and Woodrow especially loved to throw shade at me even though he was known as the George Clooney of dogs he was more like George Clooney meets Barack Obama and also a lab so he was always starving and never getting enough to eat and I was never giving him enough attention because he was a dog and that's how they think so we have sort of a running dialogue in the book, he and I.
0: You do. And it is one of my favorite parts because you have just the best. I call it indogination. Right. <laughs> your,
1: your Woodrow
0: voice. I mean like every dog owner knows what I'm saying, right? We this all have weird. the indogination.
1: So I have to ask, can you give me some? Give me some Woodrow. Yeah. So if Woodrow were on the show, he would be like, why? are the ladies talking about themselves and not about the dog. The dog is not getting enough attention. The dog (laughs) is starving. The dog needs to go out. Also, the dog should be on the show. Ladies should be on the floor. Like, basically, that's kind of what that was like. And I know, like, on tour, I've been asked about Woodrow's voice. Excuse me. And it's very – sorry, I've been talking so much. It's very specific to Woodrow. But all dog owners know their dogs have an individual voice. So I'd love to hear this from you, Rachel. What does your dog's voice sound like?
0: Yes. So I love this. Let's give you just a minute to recover because I have to say, for those of you listening <coughs> and watching, Jenna is a machine. She is on book tour right now and she has been going like crazy for the last few weeks, right? Driving literally across the country, um, meeting just hundreds of fans, stopping in bookstores. She's back in real life and it is so impressive and also so encouraging and uplifting to know that the world is sort of over- opening up again, right? And you get to be in person. So it's pretty amazing what you're doing. And so I get it why your voice is having trouble. <laughs> but, but I love your indignation of Woodrow. I just feel like you, you know, you really sort of, you capture him and I hear it in the book itself. And again, I just want to come back to, and I think that I also pin you down on this in person when I see you and we talk about this book is I know this book is about Woodrow, but I read it really, it's about Jenna right? And really, it's about a lot of things that were very heavy and hard that you were dealing with around the same time as Woodrow, um, right? We have your mom in particular, and that loss, and that is also heartbreaking. And so when I read this book, I think it's like, you know, you learn in um, novel classes or English classes, like, really, this is a book about you know, it's a book about Woodrow, but really, this is about so can right. you can you really like talk about what it's really about your mom and sort of how that started this whole process?
1: Too. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So my mom passed from breast cancer a few months before I got that fatal um, heart failure diagnosis for Woodrow. And I just sort of refused, like I just said to the universe, I'd refuse to be that person who loses her mom and her dog in such a short time period. And the universe, of course, doesn't really honor those requests, usually like doesn't really care. But in this case, I was granted more time with Woodrow. And but that is one of the personal things that I encoded into the memoir. And I feel as though any memoir about a dog is actually about the people as well, or maybe even more about the people in some ways. Like if you think about Marley and me, which is about the world's worst dog and Marley ate wallpaper off the walls and, you know, busted through doors. But it really was about the owner, John Grogan, talking about how he had to be responsible for a dog and then a young marriage and then a family and how coping with Marley helped him grow in that way. And the memoir about Woodrow, I very much wanted to be about Woodrow. I'm like, this is a book about a dog. who's in his final days. I want to honor him. I want to broadcast his personality. And then when I was in revisions, I was telling a couple of our on-air hosts about it. Jenna P., Jenna Payone, who does Lit Chick, and Mark, who is our thoughtful bro. They were sitting with me in my house, and I was describing the memoir. And Mark said to me, like, JB, JB, like, hold up one second. Like, you said, each chapter is its own lesson. One of the lessons in the middle of the book is you are not invisible about when you were sitting alone on the bench with Woodrow, wondering who could help you with him, Um, get him in and out of the house or like, who could you call in the middle of the night? And he's like, I don't understand why you were in this position, because we look at you. We see somebody who has this career and a lot of friends and a really rich, full life. And yet you say you felt very alone. Why is that? And I said, well, Mark, you know this, like I, am a divorcee. I had just broken an engagement, you know, I chose not to have children so I could focus on my career and I am happy with my choices. And they sometimes come with consequences. Like here you are alone with your dog and not having anybody to help you. And he said, that's what needs to be in the memoir. Like you need to be in the memoir. And I was like, but this is about my dog though and i realized that he of course was totally right this is why he is the thoughtful (laughs) bro so i went back and really sort of told the truth about myself in a lot of the chapters and for a novelist who's used to hiding her hand in character and situation that was at first very uncomfortable and now i find it very liberating so i've been doing all of these podcasts talking about woodrow and all of these shows like curious rachel and And saying like, this is where I am in my life. And I hope that the book helps other people who made untraditional life choices say, oh, I'm not alone. Okay, I get it. Like, here's some of the good things about that and some of the bad things, and here's how you cope with it. So I hope that it enriches the book a lot.
0: It does. It was very brave. And so I have to tell you, I have to admit that at your book launch, um, which was such a fun party, Mm -hmm. the first book launch I've been to in like two years, (laughs) I think we were all super excited. I sort of cornered your agent and I was like, I was so excited that she really wrote about the personal side, right? That she peeled back and I got to see Jenna and your agent was like, yes, yes, (laughs) right? We were both celebrating that in the corner because right? I I felt like, yes, I was very moved and I'm a dog lover and I loved the, the parts about Woodrow, but then the way you wrote about your divorce, right? And your loves- in the past, it, it sort of grabbed me in a much more visceral way. I don't know, it, you know, that might sound a little crazy, but I was like, if anything, those are the pages that I loved the most. So, what were the hardest pages to
1: write for you?
0: Thank you. Was it's it so those? Awesome.
1: <laughs> Yeah. I mean, some of them, it's really gratifying to hear that. I had two sets of pages that were really hard to write. And otherwise I will say writing a memoir is much easier for me than writing fiction, like writing fiction to me, is like being a medium where I'm trying to channel imaginary people and situations and beam them down onto paper. And that's hard, but all I had to do here was write what happened as clearly, honestly, engagingly as possible. But one of the things that was really hard, were those this emotionally vulnerable chapters and I was saying like, I am on my own here. How did I get here? You're like, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful life. And even <laughs> still, sometimes when I'm listening back to some of my podcasts, I think, who is this woman? Like, she sounds really brave and she's also in this place where she never thought she would be. And I certainly never wanted to be And yet here I am. So, um. And and I'm okay with being here. It's a very strange thing to hear. So certainly the emotional vulnerability stuff, what I call showing my underpants is like definitely that was um, unnerving to write. And I'm so happy about your response because I worry that readers will read that and just be like, how pathetic, you know, and that is not the response I'm getting. And in fact, what I hear from readers is. This is where I connect the most to you and to the book, so thank you. The other chapter that was hard, and I will tell you guys this, that the last chapter of the book is called Letting Go, when I had to let Woodrow go. And if you're triggered by this, if you are one of the people who says, I cannot read a book in which a dog passes, you can totally read Woodrow on the Bench and skip that last chapter and get everything out of it that I hope you will get. So just skip the chapter called December. Um, But that was a hard chapter for me to write because I had to relive letting my old boy go. And I wrote it in one sitting, like when you film a movie scene in one take. And halfway through I had to stop because I was crying too much and I had to go in the bathroom and, and wash my face and wipe my eyes. And I thought, I don't know if I can finish this chapter. And then I said to myself, but you must because the reason you're writing this book is to help other people through the situation and show that you came out the other side. So that's why I included that chapter. And I hope that if those of you who have older animals are looking down and sort of gun barrel at their last days, I hope those of you who do read this chapter feel comforted by it. And like, here I am, and it's okay. And um, Woodrow had a really good passing. Um, And I think he's happy on the other side. So.
0: Yeah. So mm-hmm. in that vein, a little bit of spoiler, um, you went to heroic lengths to give Woodrow more time and to make him comfortable, right? And to sort of make those last few months um, what they were. And um, I, you know, I'm curious to know now you've had a little bit more time to look back on that. Um, how do you feel about the, that decision? Because you even had friends at the time, and you talk about this in the book, who said, you know, Jenna, you've this has gone on too long right? Mm -hmm. You should have let him go earlier. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So how do you feel about that? I feel good about it, to tell you the truth. I look back and I say, I wouldn't have done anything different. Woodrow had a pretty comfortable life right up until his last week. And the last week, I wish I, this is the only thing I wish I had known what certain clues meant, because I might've let him go a few days earlier. Like he had a sort of thousand yard stare, like he was kind of looking you know, ahead of his journey the way people and animals do when they're preparing to cross the river. And he was hiding in different places in the house, which sometimes, dogs do and animals do when they're about to pass. They just want to be alone and private. And I didn't know those cues for what they were. So I might've said like, oh, okay, like it is is time. But I knew, like I knew his time was coming. And up until that point, like Woodrow very much enjoyed his life, even though his back legs had sort of gone because he was an old lab and they have trouble with their back legs. A lot of the time he was having trouble breathing, and then he got medication that was very expensive and had all these awful side effects. But he was like eating fine, he was still loving on the ladies, he was still meeting all these people on the bench and really living a good life. And that had been my vow to myself that as long as, as Anna Quinlan said about her own dog, the nose and the tail still work, the dog is happy. So I thought, as long as I can keep Woodrow comfortable and his personality is intact and he's enjoying his life. I will keep him with me. And so it really was only that last week when I started to understand like his clockwork was really failing and it was time to let go
0: yeah um so I just want to dig in a little bit further here because um I just sort of mentioned quickly that you um had friends who said to you earlier um you know it's time it's time right I think it was six months before he actually passed um you know and people were saying this you're you're doing too much Jenna and I wanted to touch on this because I feel like that is a part of friendship that people don't often see in their own life or in fiction or memoir as it may be right this this moment where you know not often friendship, right? All friendships, good friendships are not just hunky dory, right? You have moments where you disagree, where you can still come and be friends. And I love that you brought your friends in showing, right? We had this fight. We had this disagreement. Um, Can you talk about how you feel about exposing that part of the friendship and how that's going now?
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you asked about that, Rachel, because I think that you have these friends in your life who are almost like family, and they're the ones who can tell you the truth. I mean, I have miraculous friends, including you, including people I work with on The plays. Like, I'm blessed with friends. I'm rich in friends. It's something that I talk about a lot in this memoir. Um, but one of my longest-term friends, my friend Julie, who I taught with at Grub Street Writers in our very early days, and I've known for like 25 years, like she was the person who, long before the memoir, was the person who showed me how important it was to tell the truth like she's my soothsayer she's like relentlessly honest about things and never in a bad way but she's just like the person who modeled honesty for me and she came to me in this chapter in the book that's called thanksgiving like she came to spend woodrow's last thanksgiving with us and she said to me at the time she's like puppet because we call each other puppet reasons that are in the memoir but she was like puppet i think woodrow is suffering and you know him better than i do of course but i think his time might be coming and she was the only person who said that to me head on, like other people would say like, wow, you know, like I would have put him down when his legs went or, or things like that. And I always think that's well-meaning, but not helpful. Like people know their dogs and animals better than anybody else. So it's kind of like, that's nice that that's what you would do. This is a very individual, very personal decision that each pet owner has to live with. But Julie was like, I think he's suffering. And I was so mad at her. I was just incendiarily angry. That's, like, That's clear in the book, by the way. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's I, was, clear. I, I admit it. Like really, I was like, you can go now. You can leave <laughs> because the dog can hear you and you're like ruining his peace of mind and his mental state is just as important as I was like really sort of unhinged at that point. And I don't think she knew that I was really mad at her until I gave her the sample chapter to read because I wanted her to know before it came out. I was like, here's this chapter and she was like, oh, you were mad? I didn't know that. So apparently like, I haven't learned my lesson yet about how to show that I'm angry But um, and that's good, but she said, I did know that I felt bad about saying that to you at that point. That was what I felt and you said, no, it's not his time yet. It's not quite his time and I was like, okay. So the friendship survived intact and the lesson in that chapter is really like there are people in your life who you feel safe enough to have them tell you the truth and you can feel angry at them and be like you can go off you go and you're still friends afterwards closer than before so it that was a really important lesson for me to learn as well yeah but also i think great to include because
0: i feel like there's such a tendency for hollywood right to sort of make everything so much better than it actually is and true Mm -hmm. friendships really do Um, have bumps in the road, right? And you really do say things that hurt sometimes because you feel that as a friend, you need to tell them the truth. So Mm -hmm. I just thought that Mm -hmm. was beautiful that you put it out there and the way you continue to share it. So Mm -hmm. thank you for doing that. Thank you. Um, So uh, I just wanted to know, I was curious when I put this down, I was like, I wonder what her favorite part, I mean, I know you loved having Woodrow on the bench, right? Mm -hmm. And I know, but like, What was your favorite memory of him in that? Like, is it the voice? What do you keep when you think about him the most? Is that question clear? I don't know how to voice it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a
1: really good question. And I I will just touch base about the bench because people are like, what bench if you haven't read the book yet? And it's (laughs) only such a short time, but every morning and night, as I said, I would carry Woodrow out to this bench across the street from our apartment. And I mean, carry like he was an 85 pound log in a harness called a help him up harness that gave me more time with him. And I thought that when we were sitting on the bench and like he was holding court, doing his sniffs, you know, pulling in the ladies, like pulling in friends and strangers and neighbors and keeping us company, I would go out there with my iPad and a coffee and think I can get work done on the bench. Oh no, no! Like Woodrow well, is like a canine tractor beam, and people would come and sit with us, keep us company, bring us food, bring us coffee. Total strangers would sit and tell me their stories about their old dogs and then about their lives. And so it was kind of like humans of New York, except humans of Boston who love dogs or humans from like South Dakota who love dogs or or Czechoslovakia, Japan, Pennsylvania. Like people came from everywhere. And I was like, this is absolutely freaking incredible that my old dog is drawing all these people to us. So the Woodrow effect. It was the Woodrow effect. Yeah, there's actually in in one of the chapters called Jujo Farms, which is one of my favorite memories. I was auditioning a young dog sitter Casey to stay with Woodrow and I made her come sit with me on the bench so she could see the Woodrow effect. And she's like, what is that? And I'm like, just wait, young Jedi. (laughs) And we had this incredible farm couple from Pennsylvania who were celebrating their 55th wedding anniversary, sit with us on the bench, like stopped, got pulled in by Woodrow, said, how old is your dog? Can we pet your dog? They sat with us told us about the man having a near-death experience. His wife came in, gave him bone broth that they made on their farm, resuscitated him. She was like, I will send bone broth to you for Woodrow. It will help him live longer. It will help his heart. Then the gentleman read his lady a poem he had written for the occasion of their 55th anniversary. You know, like they spent their time with us. And um, after they left and went off to their anniversary dinner, Casey, the dog sitter, said, that was the Woodrow effect. And I was like, welcome to life with Woodrow. Like, this is like. So I did have all of these wonderful moments with him. And, and I included a lot of these miraculous vignettes and encounters that we had. Like that's the point of the book is just to have all these amazing things land on us. But I think one of my favorite memories with Woodrow, there are, there are two that came to mind when you asked Rachel. And one is just waking up with him every morning. Uh, My current dog, Henry Higgins, does not sleep on the bed. He sleeps in a crate. But Woodrow used to sleep on the bed with me, and I would wake up to this old man dog breath wafting over (laughs) me in hot waves. His face would be like right here in what I called Lincoln face. It was like a Mount Rushmore-sized dog head. And he would be looking at me saying, first of all, mamu, because that's what he called me. He's like, mamu. Something is very wrong. The dog is starving. The dog needs breakfast. Get up. Get up Tend to the dog. But he would also say, I am awake and you are awake. And that means it is a good day. And I really felt like no matter what else happened in the day, just to be able to give my dog that joy of like companionship and structure. And of course, bacon, um, that made it a good day for both of us. So that's one of the abiding memories that I have of him. And the other is taking him swimming for the last time in the Atlantic, which was a gift that our friend Kate gave us and should not have happened. Woodrow could not walk. And yet, because of her kindness schlepping us to Westport, Massachusetts, to a place with a boat launch, we could carry him out of the car, let him lie in the surf. He had a ball that he was ejecting into the surf that I then had to go fetch. <laughs> um, and, and he did this for hours and it was so great. And I never thought I would see him in the ocean again. And Kate gave us a great gift. So there are just so many moments of joy like that that I put into the memoir that I hope other people relate to as well. Yeah,
0: I love that. All right, well, we have to keep this tight on time because we only have half an hour and you I just want to sort of shift gears a little bit because you are also the queen of marketing and selling and getting your book out there and this is a show for debut authors, right? And this is your debut memoir. Yes. So I would love to hear you um talk a little bit about your marketing efforts. I mean, they are unbelievable and mm-hmm. um how different they are, right? We're just coming out of COVID. So what are you doing that is a different, I mean, not obviously, you're probably doing lots of Zooms, but I mean, are you seeing slight differences like the marketing campaign started much later than usual? Or, you know, you're not, people are buying more, you know, digital copies than paper. I don't know. What are you seeing that's so different now that you're- I mean, everything
1: everything is different. And you know this, Rachel, because you're a pioneer of the blaze. You started with us in the very early days in March, 2020, when I went from doing like insane in-person book tour. And I mean, I would do like 63 to hundred events, a book tour in person, flying everywhere. Like I would run over, over somebody with my car to get to a microphone. And I am not kidding. Like I love- (laughs) You, you're not kidding. I'm not kidding. I know. This is Maisel of the book circuit. Like this is my favorite thing to do is like hold up a mic in front of an audience. And so the Blaze was a great pivot for me and for all of us. Um, And so we were doing, of course, only virtual events. Now I would say for me personally, it's a mixed bag. I am actually in my family house in Minnesota right now, having just finished a Midwestern leg of my tour in person. I've been on the road, some of the events have had 80 people, some have had 50 people, some have had like eight people. Um, Usually my launch would have been two or 300 people. This year it was like maybe 80 people. So I think that people are just starting to poke their noses out of the foxholes and get back into in-person events, but very cautiously because kids are not all vaccinated yet and we have winter coming up, we have a Delta variant. So I totally respect people's wish to remain safe. We have this amazing virtual component to our lives now and we can connect from anywhere on Zoom or on StreamYard on a Mighty Blaze, obvi. <laughs> so I'm always excited to do those events as well. So it's very much a mixed bag. And what I encourage debuts to do, especially is, and I feel like a debut, I am a debut, this is my, my debut. This is your debut memoir. M-I- like it's still weird for me to walk into a bookstore and see the fiction table. And I'm like, oh my God, where's my book? They didn't put my book out. What the hell? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you're actually nonfiction now. So you can stop. Um, but <clears throat> I encourage debuts and all authors to do everything they can. Yeah, I think that's safe doing. Like, and this has been my marketing tactic from 2002, is to throw everything at the wall to see what sticks. So if you're comfortable doing virtual, do it. If you're comfortable going out in person, do it. Get a poster, like make it into a T-shirt. I'm putting this on my car when I drive home. I have like QR codes as my cell phone cover. So if somebody says, "What's your book about?" I can be like, "Ooh." (laughs) Boops, get <laughs> and find out, you know. And bribe people with shortbread. That's what I do. Or, you know, things related to the book. So anything you can do, you should do because nobody's gonna love your book more than you are. So you better get out there and hustle.
0: I love your QR code, by the way. When I saw that for the first time, I was just like, that is genius because authors get asked that all the time. What's your book about? Oh, and then they say, exactly. Scan it now as you're watching everybody. And I always say like, you know, they're like, oh, I'll have to remember to buy it. And I stand there and I'm like, you're never going to remember me or the title, right? But you
1: solved that with the QR code. Yes, I I love me a good QR code. And I have to say that the gas station pumps from Boston to Milwaukee to Indiana to Minnesota are covered with Woodrow QR code stickers. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how that happened. I don't know, but I love it. Yeah. Oh my God, I love it.
0: So um, can you tell me about, then these are two questions that I ask every debut author who comes on this show. One, can you tell me, talk to me about what is the what was the hardest part about publishing this
1: debut memoir? Are you oh the hardest part about publishing was really just the time period in which the book came out because i have an amazing team at HarperCollins. i have a fantastic agent i have an amazing editor we have laura rossi from the blaze does my publicity also Catherine beitner of Ooh. HarperCollins. like they are the creme de la creme of a team and they have been with me every step of the way and about two weeks before woodrow's original on sale of october 26th i got this email from my agent that said don't panic and i was driving and i had to pull over of course <laughs> and uh and, and she said, you know, we're having supply chain issues and the books are somewhere in the supply chain and just to be safe, we're gonna push back your on sale to November 9th. And I was like, well, what does that mean for my 2,500 events that I have scheduled and you know, et cetera? So I think that the hardest thing is just accepting that if you are an author now, You best have some ball bearings in your ankles because you are going to have to pivot. Life has been shifting very rapidly since March 2020. And we thought this would all maybe be over by now. I personally thought the pandemic would be over by June 2020. It was like me and Trump. Like we knew, you know, it was only going to be like eight weeks and it was going to be fine. I honestly think now as somebody who's been doing this professionally as an author and a blazer, that we're going to see the need to pivot for the next five years or so as things settle into a new shape. So the hardest thing has been accepting that that is true, um, but also accepting the gift that this weird time gives us, which is test your resiliency, you know, test your marketing skills, and and keep being of good faith. Like honestly, I will tell you the truth, Rachel, and I have not said this to anybody before, but I am scared. And I am just as worried as anybody that this book that I love so much is not going to reach readers. And I desperately hope it will, because I think it has lessons that will comfort people and hold their hands and hold their paws and, you know, really just give them a few good laughs and a good cry. But I don't know what the equal sign is between my efforts and your efforts and the book actually getting into readers' hands and then taking off from there. So anything you can do, those of you who are watching, to help authors you love, Buy the books, give them for gifts, buy them now, buy them soon. Please leave reviews for your author friends or the authors you love on Amazon or on Goodreads or on Bookshop. Like that helps so much. And that will help concrete that, concretize the equal sign between our love for our book and our love for you and getting that book to you. I love that.
0: I'll accept the one sentence, me and Trump.
1: (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) Did Jenna Blum just say that? A uh, stop clock is right twice a day. You got to give credit work. Credit's due. We both thought oh it was going to be over by June 2020. And oh, you know, my start. God. Sorry about that.
0: All right. So last question for you is uh, what kind of writing advice do you have for new authors or people trying to get their debut out there or just finish writing even?
1: Yeah. Be of good faith. Faith is the thing that you have when you don't have belief, right? So I don't necessarily believe that my book is going to get out there the way that i want it to but i have faith that it will and i'm going to put all my muscle behind that so if you have something that you wish desperately were true and you don't quite have that thing um have faith that it will happen if you keep rising and grinding Um, and i think that that is the most important thing i can tell any author whether it's about marketing or whether it's about writing the book is that you need grit like you need to keep going when things look bad we have seen this happen with our Blaze family, with our Grub Street family, just when people are like, I give up, the book's never going to get published, like Dawn Music on Sesame Street, like, oh, I'll never get it right, never, never, never. <laughs> That's usually when it happens, but it's because those people did not give up. So you have to yes. write well, you have to read well, you have to have facility with language, but most of all, you have to have grit and you have to have faith and it will happen. I love that. Jenna Blum, you're absolutely
0: amazing. Thank you so, so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. For all of you listening and watching, go out and buy the book, Woodrow on the Bench. Buy it now. Don't miss it. And Jenna, may you sell many, many copies.
1: Thank Thank you, Rachel, for your sparkle and beauty.